0: We're all learning to live with the new normal. This will be the new normal. The new normal.
1: Listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. The series aims to unpack the questions raised by the COVID 19 outbreak, examining the rifts exposed by the pandemic and the convergent struggles that are emerging in the aftermath of the quarantine. No New Normal broadcasts from Jojage, the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee nations. You can catch us here on CKUT 90.3 FM every other Friday at 5 p.m. I'm Athena Khalid. Stay tuned for our third episode people, not workers. Migrants on the borders of viral capitalism. In Montreal, some of the neighborhoods that have been the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic are Park Extension, Montreal North, and Cote-des-Neiges. It's no coincidence that these three neighborhoods are home to large segments of Montreal's migrant communities, and that these three neighborhoods are disproportionately home to the working poor. Many migrants, especially those here with temporary work permits, work precarious jobs, where health and safety standards were already being neglected. When the pandemic was declared a public health emergency in March, many migrants found themselves working jobs deemed essential working as orderlies, at long-term care facilities, at meat plants, in warehouses, as domestic workers, or as farm workers, without any adequate protection. Of course, many of these migrants couldn't work from home or take time off, and the problem was compounded for those working multiple jobs. A number of employers who used temporary workers' agencies were the sites of outbreak, which led to the spread of COVID-19. In March, migrants held at the Migrant Detention Center in Laval went on a hunger strike. On March 19th, people detained at the centre sent a letter to Public Safety Minister Bill Blair, the Canada Border Service Agency President John Osowski, and other government officials, demanding their immediate release. On March 24th, after not receiving a response, 30 detainees went on an indefinite hunger strike. People inside said that social distancing was impossible in the centre, and that the only way to avoid an outbreak was to be released. Migrants detained in the CBSA's holding center in Laval suspended their hunger strike on April 1st, as many of those on strike were released. Around 20 migrants remained in the center, but most were released over the course of April. However, it seems that the CBSA has since started refilling the center with migrants on deportation orders, despite the moratorium. Here's Abdul, who was detained in the Laval Migrant Center from January until April, and who was involved in the hunger strike.
2: The conditions were was, was the same for us. Uh, we didn't see much change. We didn't see them take uh, measures uh, on time. I I can tell on time and uh, especially like serious me- measures to protect us. And uh, we noticed it. And at one point we had to uh, um, talk to talk to the immigration agents and just let them know that we're not feeling safe. Because at one point we were still uh, the, the the pandemic was declared all around the world and we were still having people coming from overseas, uh, freshly from the airport. And uh, when we asked them, like they told us that they never seen doctors or any medical checker, uh, which was the opposite of what the immigration agent told us. So that was when we really started getting worried about our our health in, in that place, because it was, uh, I was talking earlier about the common area which is pretty much a closed area. There is pretty much no window, and uh, there is the the, the guards. There are uh, more or less than fifteen people uh, uh, patrolling around, walking around. So we all um, plus the plus the detainees. So we all lack in that one environment, which is not even uh, um, that, which is not even like uh, that. Don't even even have windows. So we we were very worried about the situation. That's why uh, at one point we start putting pressure on the immigration agent for them to do something.
1: And so, what led to the to the hunger strike itself?
2: So after many uh, uh, tries, after many times trying to talk to the immigration agent for, for change, they uh, didn't do anything. So that's how we decided to talk to the try to talk to the people outside. And uh, especially the politicians or the people that decide to let them know that uh, we just risking they they lacking us there and they making they we we in the risk of of getting contaminated. So at first we we did make a petition uh, and I, I made everybody sign it and at that time we we all knew solidarity across borders and uh, they help us. Uh, Put, in touch, put us in touch with uh, the journalists and we we were able to 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 take out our our, our petition, and uh, as as we did, everybody signed it. We we sent it out, but uh, we we waited, and uh, and the situation was still the same, and we were getting the news that the 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 pandemic was the 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 covid was growing, and now it's. It's a pandemic anything in Canada, like everybody was getting more worried. So so we 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 decided like after talking with all of us, we, we just decided to make a, a hunger strike because we we were that scared and, and that worried about, about our health. So so everybody yeah everybody just decided to, to make one, Like uh, go on hunger strike and and let the world know what what we live in. and and try to get help.
1: So you were, you were released, but were others released as well?
2: Yes. Um, pretty much uh, everybody that was doing the hunger strike, they, they've been released and even the others too. Uh, at one point they were, there were only two people left in the center. Um, right now I, I believe that they, they did send new people over there, but, um, um, yes, uh, at one point, pretty much everybody got free.
1: And can you tell me about the conditions of your release?
2: Um, it was uh, there was an amount of money as a um, an amount of money, uh, seven hundred dollars uh, for for guarantee, um, and uh, I had to have a sponsor, which was my sister, and I got to live at her house and. Uh, and um also another condition is to call at a number since we cannot uh uh, at that time we couldn't go there because of the confinement but it's still going we just make phone calls twice uh, twice every month for me and um yeah the also the the fact that i have to uh, take care of my travel document as soon as uh, the 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 embassy
1: open, and so would you say that the hunger strike then was a success?
2: To me, to me, it was because uh, we at least we had we we could express uh, what we what we were living in there. We we had a lot of support uh, from outside. Um, even I can remember there was kids sending us drawings and messages of support. Which was uh, a sign of uh, that a sign that a lot of people was supporting us too. So and uh, and also the the fact that we we got released a little after that. So yeah, for me it was was a success. I don't regret it.
1: And can you tell me a bit about your um your situation now? What you know about uh the future of your your case, um and your your status in Canada?
2: Um, for my case, um uh from the immigration perspective from the immigration uh, agents perspective they they trying to send me home uh, because i have a deportation order but at the same time i'm uh, with my lawyer refining at the federal court for humanitarian reasons um so i can say that it's still a fight for me and i am not sure how it's gonna go but uh, for right now everything is and everything been on, on hold, like nothing was moving since uh, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. So um, right now I don't know what's gonna happen. I'm just waiting.
1: That was Abdul, who was detained at the migrants' detention center in Laval from January until April. In the case of the migrant detention center, a hunger strike led to most of those detained to be released on various conditions. But the fact that so many migrants have precarious status and are working precarious jobs makes it difficult for them to mobilize in similar ways. Here's Mustafa Henaway, a community organizer with the Immigrant Workers Center, to give us some background on migration to Montreal and to tell us about how the COVID 19 pandemic has affected the migrants who live here.
0: So, uh, my name is Mustafa Henaway, and I'm a community organizer at the Immigrant Workers Center here in uh, Montreal, and I've been there for 13 years now, and working with precarious uh, immigrant and migrant workers to organize both for their labor rights and around migrant issues and questions of migrant justice, both on the collective and individual level. Uh, And beyond that, I'm also uh, a a writer and have been writing about these issues in terms of precarious labor, migration, globalization, but also uh, particularly the context here in Montreal and currently doing my doctorate at Concordia in geography. So uh, the Immigrant Workers Centre was founded in 2000 and is an organization based in Côte d'Ange that really began as a way uh, to to really think through the questions of globalization and, and who was impacted by these sort of these local manifestations, right? Both in terms of the way that people were forced to migrate through these temporary foreign worker programs, particularly at that point, uh, live in caregiver workers from the Philippines uh, that were here as temporary workers working on closed work permits who were unable to uh, access their basic labor rights and still cannot to this day as a result of of the way that the program is structured. and to fill the void, because unions weren't taking those uh, communities and those jobs very seriously. One, because of the challenges that uh, they faced to organize people who work in a single home, um, and you know we're in a, a single worker in a single home, so it created a whole series of, of challenges. So the Immigrant Workers Center tried to fill that void by creating a space uh, to build a sense of solidarity amongst precarious immigrant and migrant. Um, workers and their communities uh, to defend both their basic labor rights, but also their immigration rights. So, um, and the immigrant workers Centre really expanded since then, since 2000, to really take on a whole host of issues. And um, for the last, I would say, decade, uh, the strategy has really been to kind of to try to undermine or to roll back the way that precarious labor. And particularly amongst migrants, is sort of is managed and uh, is sort of is structured, right? And one of the things, uh, the two large things that we see as being sort of central to precarious work in the in the modern day context, is not the ideas of let's say self employment or the ideas of that there's uh, less work or even the gig economy. The way that I would say that our perception is, is that it's about the relationship to work that has fundamentally changed and particularly for immigrant and migrant communities. So you look at the the nineties where a lot of people uh, who were immigrants were here as citizens, uh, they were able to attain permanent residency. Uh, they worked, let's say in textile and the garment sector. Um, and those were full time jobs and there was a sense of kind of security, uh, stability, um, and then all of that changes, particularly after the financial crisis of 2008, where you have this move towards, you know, you have the deindustrialization of Montreal, you have the the move of a lot of textile to the global south, and then you have this rise of of two forms of precarious labor. One is placement agencies, uh, which will really be uh, the mechanism in which a lot of immigrants will find jobs right it's the uh, no CVs required uh, regardless of your status there's always the possibility to find more work Um, uh, you know it sort of plays into the idea that you know people don't have quote-unquote Canadian experience but a lot of these jobs through these temp agencies are sort of permanent temporary jobs, right? So uh, in, in like meat processing and, and chicken processing, where a lot of these workers aren't even paid minimum wage, uh, they're paid below the minimum wage, high rates of extremely dangerous accidents, uh, people facing deportation. Um, and then even for those who have some status or work permit, are working through these big agencies where they don't have the right to unionize. They're working in warehouses and distribution centers. Uh, and most of them are are desperate to attain that job or keep that job. So they accept a whole host of issues in terms of workplace abuse, in terms of health and safety, wages, uh, the right to organize. Um, and then the other crux is really the temporary foreign worker program, which brings in, um you know, th- over 300,000 people on this temporary migration status, where whether it's seasonal agricultural workers, whether it be people just through the low skilled pilot project, where people are uh, working either in trucking, uh, on farms, uh, and large industrial uh, uh, meat plants like Ollie Mill or Cargill, uh, what we saw in Alberta in terms of the outbreak there. Uh, and a lot of them are coming on closed work permits. So as a result of these closed work permits, their relationship to, to the workplace has changed, right? They feel a sense of loss of power because if they're fired from their job, they have a limited time to find a new employer, a new uh, LMIA or labor market uh, impact assessment, which means that they can then be hired through the program And so as a result, they're unable to speak up. They're unable to uh, leave their job. You know, the basic contract that we have in our uh, economic model, which is that you can fire me, but I can also leave my job, right? And these workers don't have those rights. Uh, They don't have the right to unemployment insurance uh, once their work permit is, is over. Even though that case was challenged by a group of farm workers that we work with, uh, so there's really these structural issues that are tied both around their immigration status, but also sort of the relationship uh, to their employers as a result, either through these agencies or temporary foreign workers. And not only that, those demographics sort of relate to uh, questions of 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 also, unfortunately, of, of poverty and inequality that you're beginning to see in the pandemic really play out. So the two neighborhoods with the the highest rates of working poverty are Cote d'Ivoire and Park X. So Park Extension has a working poverty rate of nearly of over 30%, meaning that people are working full time but still live under the poverty line. Uh, and then Cote d'Ivoire, it's roughly 28 to 29%. And uh, a lot of that is because of people's status, because of the jobs they're working. Uh, so uh there's these intersections not just the sort of immigration questions or labor rights but then also kind of that inequality that we're beginning to see uh, play out before the pandemic but now really begin to shape the way the pandemic is is being played out here yeah so i i mean for when the pandemic broke out and who was affected and not affected i mean uh i mean it's very clear people who are here as immigrants and migrants uh didn't have the luxury first of all when the pandemic broke up to telework or to work from home most of them had uh, blue collar jobs mostly in these very low wage sectors precarious sectors so food processing uh warehouse and distribution uh so companies very large companies like dollarama or cargo um even to more local uh chicken plants like uh concord premium meats Um, You know, people were working as preposes uh, uh, through these temporary placement agencies or people were having multiple jobs. So just to give a few examples not related to the center, and then I could give a few related to the center. So uh, there was a story of of two refugees, uh, uh, both of them from Haiti, who lost their lives as a result of COVID. Both of them were refugee claimants. Uh, one of them uh was working as uh in a textile garment plant Monday to Friday was a preposé on the weekends, uh beneficere. And he was his wife was also actually working at cargo uh chicken plant, which had an outbreak of sixty-two people, uh still nowhere near the size of the cargo plant uh in Alberta, which had to date the largest outbreak in Canada. Um And so she had a precarious job. They both had precarious jobs. Both of them were working through these temp placement agencies. And so the problem with the structure of temp agencies isn't through the pandemic. It isn't that, I mean, a big part of it is that you're seeing these intersections, right? People are going from one workplace to the next. They never have any stability. And so they become these sort of super spreaders, right? And we saw that throughout the long-term care homes, right? That a lot of these people were going from one home to the next in the same day. But the big problem with agencies is that uh, employers uh, are sort of in love or fascinated by temp agencies because they download the responsibility of health and safety onto the agency themselves. So, because the agency pretends to be the employer, the real employer is responsible for basic occupational health and safety. So, that means they get away with a lot of things that. In most circumstances employers wouldn't be able to get away with so providing basic health and safety equipment uh providing proper health and safety training um and so these issues that were existing before only get exasperated uh during the pandemic all right and a lot of these jobs are sort of are fast-paced uh high quotas um you know in in cargo people are working shoulder to shoulder uh, and because uh, in these sectors where there's a very much a sort of uh, a high turnover, a high quota system, it's because they have these uh, low profit margins. So the, the the faster they work or the faster they can put their output, uh, that's the only way they can make money. Uh, so in Dollarama, uh, this one distribution center, which has a thousand workers, all of them work through placement agencies, five different placement agencies. I have a weekly co- quota collectively to ship two million boxes. Um, so if you break that down by second by worker, a worker has to lift and move and place uh, a box uh, it can be smaller, up to twenty kilos every twenty seconds to make their quota. That's working through lunch, working through their breaks, and so. Uh, and so they're shoulder to shoulder. They have one lunchroom. Uh, they can be hired or fired at any time. To give you an example, in Dollarama, uh, two workers were fired because of their complaints they raised uh, in terms of the way the agency, or in terms of the way that occupational health and safety was being managed during the pandemic. One of them raised questions about other workers who had been contact contracted COVID uh the worker had worked there for ten years, uh the supervisor simply told them, Call your agency. He calls the agency, he was let go the next day without any recourse, without any justification, because they just say the contract is over. You're not an actual employee, you're a temp worker. Uh the same thing with someone uh else who worked there for three years who is a a sort of a trainer uh refugee claimant from Haiti also. Um and workers were complaining about the way that the lunchroom was being managed during the pandemic uh, and making people go into the same fridge to get their lunch. He had no, he wasn't involved in this, but workers began to sort of have a little revolt inside the workplace. Uh, and workers asked him questions because he looked like a supervisor. He brought the issues up to the other management, to the rest of management. They told him call his agency let go the next day, told not to come back. Uh, So these agencies exercise this kind of power over workers as a result. And because people are immigrants and migrants, uh, they feel that the sense of impunity, that they can just, you know, let go of this person, let go of that person. Um, So it really became exasperated during the pandemic, uh, uh, whether it be sort of in these, uh situations with preposes in the long term care homes who are badly paid paid you know 13 14 dollars an hour working 12 hours a day going from one workplace to the next uh never having a secure job contract uh and these are the people who were doing the essential jobs uh you know when we look at Ontario right now uh, the largest outbreaks are with migrant farm workers you know, they're working and living in these camps in these large industrial farms. You know, we already had three migrant workers who also uh, passed away. Uh, you know, Cargo, uh, again, and in, in Alberta was this plant full of, I mean, the majority of workers were Filipino migrant workers. You know, and hundreds of people contracted uh, COVID there. And yet a lot of the bigotry and the racism backlash was that, well, it's cultural issues. They live in these big homes. Uh, they commute together. They didn't care. No one ever pinned the blame on the employer, the fact that they were working these cold, dry workplaces shoulder to shoulder and not provided equipment. So you have this moment where immigrant migrant workers are are, are seen more and more as just being disposable in, in the most literal sense as human beings uh, while everyone else gets to stay at home. And that really is beginning to frame or shape uh, people's perceptions, because also look at the communities that actually have the highest rates of infection in Montreal: the Montreal North, uh, a high rate of Haitian and African refugees uh, who are living there. Many of them are essential workers. It's Park Axeville Ray Saint Michel, and it's Cote Sainte. And so there's this clear dynamic that uh, COVID is spreading inside these workplaces. Um, and this is where these outbreaks are happening, and employers uh, that were already not dealing with health and safety only exasperated it and for profit, only for profit.
1: That was Mustafa Henaway of the Immigrant Workers Centre. Here he is again talking about Concord Premium Meats, a meat packaging plant with facilities in St. Eustache, and about the outbreaks on industrial farms in Ontario.
0: When it comes to health and safety for a lot of people working cash so concord meets is a perfect example uh, uh, it uses multiple agencies uh it generally makes souvlaki most of the people are are south asian who work there they work through these agencies it's in Saint stash and uh they take these agency buses every day from park and they're cramped and people are working eight to, to, to nine dollars an hour uh, people have children here or where they migrated from that are dependent on their on on their sub-minimum wage, you know, salary. Um, people accept very hard conditions. And even before the pandemic, uh, you know, someone was talking about, well, access to rights or health and safety during the pandemic. And they had an outbreak of 24 workers. Someone said, you know, if the employer really cared about us, Uh, They would have given money uh, to the workers who who lost their hands before the pandemic. Multiple cases have workers, you know, having their hands chopped off by equipment. Uh, And workers had to raise money collectively uh, to support those workers because the employer didn't. One worker had died on the job and they actually had to support the worker. So people have no faith or ability to sort of access basic rights and only gotten worse during the pandemic uh, back in Ontario. Uh, they realized that it wasn't the temporary foreign workers on these farms uh, that were uh, creating community transition, transmission. There was actually undocumented agency workers who were also working side by side with these temporary foreign workers on these large farms. And you have that situation across the board uh in Quebec um uh you know so uh where the the transport is unregulated of these workers where the health and safety there is not regulated and even the ability to access rights is not very secure so uh it, it puts people in much more dangerous position uh than other other segments of society or in other workplaces
1: Mustafa mentions the poor conditions at the Dollarama warehouse here in Montreal. There have been a number of demonstrations organized by Dollarama warehouse workers over the last few months after a number of employees were fired for raising concerns about the poor health and safety conditions at the warehouse. This is Mohamed Barry, who organizes with Status for Ghanaians. Mohamed and others at Status for Ghanaians have been working on the campaign to support Dollarama workers at the warehouse. Here he is, talking a bit more about the conditions.
3: Uh, they're not protected, you know. Um, it's impossible to, to keep the social distancing. It's impossible. It's overcrowded. But, like, Dollarama is supposed to, not supposed to be more than 200 uh, uh, people inside the, the, the warehouse. There are more than three people, two, 300 people inside who work in the same shift.
1: How does, like, the fact that this kind of work is invisible affect um, the work that you're doing and the work that other people are doing to um, like for, for people to have status, especially if the the work that they're doing isn't is made invisible.
3: It's because a uh, lot of people is uh, precarious. They have a precarious status, and they are newcomers. They don't know the right. They don't know anything about the system, uh, and there are, some of them are scared to be deported uh, by the CBSA the Canadian Border Services um, some of them they even they have the resident permanency but they newcomers still newcomers they don't know what to do you know they don't know any organization to complain but recently some of them started to raise their voice and to talk about what is going on you know uh, so they are scared to be her- fired too mm-hmm. because it's not easy for them to get a job they have families they have parents so Back home, or they have with their the families, they have bills to pay. Always, they are not covered by any benefits from the government. Uh, it, it's hard, you know.
1: You kind of mentioned that people are scared of being deported. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what that um, that fear, how that fear affects people's day-to-day lives?
3: Where do you see the CBS. Whenever you see someone or some, even someone wants to talk to you, or you are scared, you know, you live in with fear. Uh, it's a routine, you know, all the time. So.
1: In terms of the Dollarama workers, how that fear um, maybe makes people less likely to push for their rights?
3: Yeah, absolutely. They take that advantage because the company knew their situation and they're taking advantage of that. And that's the that's why they exploit them, because they know they, they cannot complain anywhere, you know. they. I haven't even call the police. It's, but, uh, hopefully it's going to change.
1: That was Mohamed Barry, who organizes with status for Ghanaians. So migrants with temporary work visas who find work through temporary work agencies not only have precarious status, but are also caught in a cycle of precarious labor conditions as well. The same is true of domestic workers, who often work in isolated conditions, making mobilization even more challenging. Here's Evelyn Mondonedo Kalugai, the administrator and coordinator at Pinay. Uh,
4: my name is Evelyn uh, Mundunyedo Kalugay. I am the administrator coordinator of and <clears throat> an unelected finance uh, officer. And um, we, in Pinay, we advocate for living in caregivers or uh, caregivers in the temporary workers program uh, who are mostly who are uh, who have issues on uh, labor violations on their rights uh, human rights uh, and uh, uh, immigration uh, status and the society themselves look at them as the lowest at the lowest Workers among all the workers anywhere in the world, because of the traditional work of uh, caregivers that these domestic workers are being done by women, not paid invisible so it's it's up to now it's uh, they are considered like that there's no value for their for the the work that they do but but the government you know considers them as worker, but they still they don't give them the benefits as workers, because these workers don't even get uh, workmen's compensation when they get uh, accident uh, at work. So how, how, there's such a big contradiction on, 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 on this regulation of, uh, or classification categorizing workers.
1: The next question I have is um, how these conditions have been made worse um, during the, the COVID nineteen outbreak.
4: Well they were they were caught inside. They were not allowed to go out. As soon as lockdown was announced, then the employer will say, Okay, you stay here, you cannot go out because we don't want you to carry the virus, you know. If you go in and out from one place to one to the next, they were not allowed to take public transport or something like that. I don't know if they use it as an excuse, you know, uh, because if, uh, let's say, for example, if uh, uh, you are uh, um, an employer who is uh, uh, a bourgeoisie that has their their kids inside to, to take care of, make some excuses to, for them to stay there. And, and they know that these this workers are being very fearful of losing their job because they have families at home that they have to support. If they don't go to work, if they refuse to stay in and they go home and the employer doesn't want them to come in and out, then they have no choice. They have to send money to their family. But uh, uh, even then, because they were not allowed to go out during the lockdown, they were not able to send money. You know, it was a loss, loss
1: situation for them. And are there were there ways that um, people doing that kind of work dealt with or tried to respond to the situations? Um, did they were there people that contacted Penai How what was it like? Kind of in the midst of it. Well, they were asking. Like they were telling us that.
4: They cannot even, you know, they cannot even uh, have food because they were not allowed to cook their own food or to buy groceries for their food. So it's a good thing we have the uh, we have uh, thought of uh, uh, doing relief goods to the community who needs it then they were able you know people were registering and saying okay i need this just give me just send me uh noodles cup noodles because i'm not allowed to cook and and i need a kettle to boil water so i can do it inside my bedroom can you imagine yourself being there in the in that situation can you imagine eating cup noodles every day how can you work? How can you have maintain your strength to work if if uh, that's all the uh, nourishment you get every day? That that's a sin. That's that's killing people. You know. You know you're not considered a human being already. You don't put yourself in their shoes just because you are in the upper bracket of the society. You don't think about the others who are, who don't have the it's a class struggle actually if you really look at it in the capitalist system how there are different class status of people here you know and it's being uh um worsened by the capitalist system so you know, you those who are in the working class will have to bear everything, but if they don't get together and really uh, fight the common enemy, then nothing will happen.
1: That was Evelyn from Pinay. Both Evelyn and Muhammad suggest that employers exploit temporary foreign workers, and domestic workers in particular, based on their precarious status. And as Evelyn points out, this exploitation is very clearly tied to class lines. I asked Mustafa to what extent this precarity leads to a lack of access to healthcare and to rights. Here is his response.
0: Um, so in terms of uh people's health care and access to health care, it's it's very poor. So if you're undocumented, uh, you have no access to health care, period. Right? It's not like Spain, it's not like other countries uh where they had access to health care and even during the pandemic, um people only had access to COVID related uh you know, diseases. So getting a test. So as opposed to really dealing with this pandemic from a holistic or humanistic perspective, we still have this uh this perception there are citizens, those who are deserving and those who are undeserving. And and the way that's done with the uh, access to healthcare is, is very much a, a central part of it. Because access to healthcare for everyone during this pandemic would actually limit uh, community transmission for migrants, they have no access um, uh, to healthcare once they lose their status.
1: Right. And earlier you were talking also about um, the fact that people had been fired for pointing out the lack of health and safety um, in their work conditions. To what extent are people is people's status dependent on their employment? And if that's the case, how does that affect their ability to access and negotiate their rights?
0: Well, uh, it definitely people's status very much affects their employment uh, choices and their ability to access their rights. So if you are uh, undocumented or you have precarious status, uh, you're working in the worst jobs. Uh, You live in this fear of deportation. Even if there is a moratorium on deportations at the moment, you don't have access to CERB, which everyone else does, the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit. So you have to work. You're propelled into the situation where you have to work. So you're putting your health at risk, uh, first and foremost, more than other segments of society because you're forced to work you don't have access to to state benefits, uh and then on top of it uh you have the fear of deportation uh you have the you know ultimate ability of the employer to fire you because you don't exist right uh you simply just don't exist um even though under the labor law, there's a broad vague category, even workers who are paid cash have the ability to access their rights. But the problem is, is that there's no uh, there's no law that stops them from communicating certain information, let's say, with immigration. So as a result, workers are still afraid to uphold their rights, even though they have the right to. When you see that sort of play out, like whether it be in Guinea or whether it be in the rest of Africa, that's creating these uh, movements of people to migrate, or whether it be uh, in Latin and Central America, right? That uh, climate change is a big driver of migration uh, from Guatemala and Honduras, creating these large coffee droughts. Uh, the fact that uh, United States agribusiness has you know, flooded and decimated, substance farming, causing these waves of migration. And many of these people come here and work in those exact same companies that are driving migration. Uh, it's literally a full circle, and our structure, our migration regime, is never to keep these migrants out, but it's to keep them precarious. It's to keep people, um, uh, you know, disposable. You know, that for neoliberalism to work, you have to create the perfect neoliberal worker, right? Someone who is actually disposable, who's considered, uh, you know. Practically non-human, uh, or or um, a, a non-citizen, and that what our migration regimes are really about. And so you have this system taking place, or uh, across the advanced, you know, uh, you know, Europe and North America, uh, that's really trying to re-engineer this sort of this idea of migration, not as a human right, or not. Uh, on the basis of permanent migration, but what they call circular migration or temporary migration. So in the Western world, they need these migrants, but the question is under what conditions? And if they come as permanent residents, if they come as equals, uh, then they're not disposable. They can't be made cheap labor. They can't. uh, And so this is what really uh, what it's about. And what you've now seen is the pandemic really lay that system of, of apartheid, of structural apartheid, bear, right? Especially here. Who is affected? Who's not affected uh, by this pandemic? Uh, and it is very much clearly tied to, to questions of race and class.
1: That was Mustafa from the Immigrant Workers Center. As Mustafa says, the precarity inherent to the temporary foreign workers category is necessary to the functioning of racial capitalism because it creates the ideal neoliberal worker, one that can be maximally exploited for the sake of profits. But our economy's dependence on this kind of work points to how essential it is, which has been made even clearer during the pandemic. Here's Evelyn talking about domestic workers as frontline workers.
4: Well, it's it's uh, the, the status their status. Like uh, if if the government uh, can can regularize uh, frontline workers who are. Uh, refugee claimant. Why can't they do it for everyone who has a temporary, a precarious status? Don't don't uh, divide them. They are also workers. I mean, domestic workers are frontliners too. If 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 it's not for them, and they will, uh, you know, they will have to go. Uh, they won't be able to. Function, the family will not be able to function, the bourgeois uh, class will not be able to function without these domestic workers. So, you you know, they are also frontliners. Those who are working, uh, who are uh, 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 taking care of an elderly alone at home if that elderly was in a re- in a, in a residence long term care will are they will they have a 100% guarantee that that elderly will be alive by now look what they are doing you know but they are not considered frontline they're not considered that they are doing something really to prevent uh, uh the safety or uh, to, to, to provide the safety of an elderly that, that, that prefers to stay home. I don't know why they are being uh, excluded in the society.
1: That was Evelyn from Pinay. And here's Mohammed also talking about migrant workers, as not just essential workers, but as essential people.
3: I just want to add to the government to regularize everyone. Uh, those people, we they are they calling them uh, essential workers. They are not essential workers, they are essential people. Because the pandemic have shown how much they are essential, how much they are willing to contribute to the economy of this country, how much they are part of this country, how much they are part of this society. That's, uh, they cannot live here. They made a great network here that they cannot destroy in two weeks.
1: That was Mohammed from Status for Ghanaians. Here's a bit of my conversation with Mustafa about the uneven borders within the global north and on the increased momentum and calls for regularization. One thing that I, I was thinking about while you were kind of in, in response to what you just said is that the narrative, I think, um, especially in Canada, is that you know that immigrants can come and set up their lives and there's kind of this this narrative of immigration that's very much tied to the permanent resident class that makes the kind of the temporary uh workers very much invisibilized and the work that they do is invisibilized and I guess I was just thinking about that in relation to kind of the the global north global south dynamics but how they that plays out within cities like within cities in the global north themselves
0: No, 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 exactly. I mean, it's not that those dynamics are simply on a on a global scale, but uh, I mean, they play out on these on these micro scales here in particularly in the global north in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of those dynamics, in terms of uh, inequality, in terms of Uh, Invisibilized labor, that's sort of central to the reproduction of of global capitalism, both in the the local sense of these cities, but then also uh, in the more global sense. And we saw that with the pandemic, right? And I think that fueled a lot of uh, not just tragedy, but empowerment of these communities, right? Where they realized, you know, something clicked, you know, all of a sudden, um, uh, we're the ones who are taking care of people's children. We're taking care of the sick uh without us no one would have food uh without us many segments of society or what people call life making work or or social reproduction uh wouldn't exist without these immigrant and migrant communities invisibilized workers you know the the global south within the global north would not happen and so that's why i think you're beginning to see this you know more of this massive movement now uh to calling for regularization or to calling for status um, uh, for these communities or people beginning to go on strike or people beginning to to sort of uh, to exercise some sense of collective power um, on an individual level. You know, in Montreal, for example, in Quebec, there's been double the amount of labor complaints this year than there have been in and then last year. So people are are beginning to you know. Take out their frustration, their anger, but also uh realizing a sense of importance um, in society uh, as a result of that dynamic, but realizing that it wasn't them that was reliant on on sort of a you know on the global north here or relying on those employers or relying on these on these states, but also the fact that they were relying on them. So I, I mean, I think it's, it's also it's, uh, it's extremely inspiring uh to see all of a sudden, and whether that results in any permanent changes, and you know, at, as long as trying to get other people to, to support, because this question of essential work now is really, you know, in in people's consciousness, but it's about trying to to keep it there constantly and you know tying that also to other things like the the broader questions on race that are being and colonialism that are being tackled now right through uh post the 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 brutal murder of george floyd is to tying those issues to those to those issues in terms of race and colonialism which they're very much intrinsically are
1: one last um question would be if you could tell me a bit about these Um, like the increase in calls for regularization and the mobilization around um, the campaign for status for all.
0: So I guess, I mean, since the early days of the pandemic, you saw these great or, uh, you know, grassroots initiatives uh, take place on several fronts, but all very interlinked, you know, with Solidarity Across Borders, many of its members, uh, didn't have access to to the CERB or to any state benefits, so they began fundraising on a massive scale. You know, nearly 000, um, as a hundred thousand dollars as a mutual aid fund to a non-status people here in Montreal. Um, and then you saw this formation of people uh, who were undocumented beginning to actually just speak out uh, and calls for regularization. So you had uh, within Solidarity Across Borders, uh, this movement of non-status people themselves beginning to take a leadership role, uh, calling for uh, status and they launched an open letter. Uh, you also had other initiatives around the Amateur Worker Center, uh, which also launched an open letter by a group of undocumented women uh, calling for CSQs, access to health care, uh, you began to see a movement of, of workers, you know, Dollarama as an example where workers spoke up, were still employed there, um, you know, and not that they have a union, not that they have job security, that they were willing to speak up and meet and organize despite the challenges, um, you know, and then, and then you have obviously the movement, Uh, Debut pour la Dignité, which was beginning to call for the regularization of guardian angels, these refugee claimants working through uh, temp agencies in the long-term care homes. And the government had to budge to the point that they caved into the regularization or the rhetoric, at least. There's no specifics yet. Yes, that these people should have some status or there should be some program for them. And I think that really empowered other segments. I was doing essential work. I was a baker. I was a distribution worker. I was working in a meat plant. That was essential work. Where's my status? Or where's status for everybody? And so now that sort of empowered a broader movement for regularization. So you had the demonstration on July 4th uh, that was calling for status for all, which was extremely diverse. Right? Hundreds of people on the streets. Uh, you know, women who were working as as in in long term care homes, uh, uh truck drivers uh, from from the Philippines were present, uh people who were released from uh, the detention center in Laval uh were also uh present. And people who have been here undocumented for quite some time were also present and felt empowered, but also community allies. So it's really about uh, building a broad movement now of all of these immigrants and migrants, because there is this window now uh, that exists and won't exist for for much longer. So it is really important to build a movement, um, uh, both of migrants and directly affected people themselves, but also broader allies. because. Without it, people who are directly affected may not have this opportunity again to actually to win some kind of regularization program.
1: That was Mustafa from the Immigrant Workers Center. So the yearly status for all March organized by Solidarity Across Borders and other organizations that took place on July 4th holds a new significance this year. As Trudeau and Legault have moved towards the rhetoric of regularization for health workers in particular, groups like Solidarity Cross Borders, the Immigrant Worker Centre, Status for Ghanaians, Pinay, and many others continue to call for status for all migrants. For more information about the Status for All campaign, you can visit Solidarity Cross Borders' website and have a look at their principles for a regularization program in Canada. You can also sign their petition for Status for All, donate to their mutual aid fund, or read the open letter on regularization as the only solution in this time of crisis. Here's Abdul, who was detained at the Laval Migrants Detention Center earlier this year on regularization and status for all.
2: Status for all is, is just a, a demand of regularization of status for, for, for migrants not just the asylum seekers even though they are a big number in it um, it is also temporary workers that lost their status um, international students and uh, migrants in general um, that uh, lost the status uh, in this period knowing that the status is blocking you from having uh, all the support uh, social and financial support that that you need to to live at least uh, a decent life, uh, especially in these conditions, in this situation where everyone is blocked, like not even people can go back to the country, or even if they wanted to, um, they uh, they staying here without without any support from from nobody. So, oh, for our demand was to to ask the government to uh, to give those people a status so they can they can at least. Uh, be protected uh, and covered, just just like every regular Canadian.
1: You've been listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. No New Normal examines the structural rifts laid bare by the COVID nineteen pandemic and the convergent struggles that have come as a result. Today's episode was people, not workers, migrants and the borders of viral capitalism. I'm Athena Khalid. Thanks to James Ward and Gao Mahadevan for production, and to Sasha Kay for the theme. Thanks as well to Abdul, Mustafa, Evelyn, Hamid for taking the time to talk to us. Tune in on Friday, July 31st at 5 p.m. for our next episode on homelessness and harm reduction.